Absolutely. I mean, there's there's a wonderful woman around here near where I am um, has a cookie. It's actually not just cookies, but she started with cookies. <laughs> she makes desserts. Um, she tells her story. I heard her tell her story at an event where she was, you know, she was working, she was producing at home, and then she was using the kitchen of a restaurant when they closed at 11 o'clock at night. So she was Jeez. producing from like 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. or something. I have no idea how she did this. And then she moved to a shared commercial kitchen and then she scaled and was getting investors to build out her own 5,000 square foot production facility, right? Like, but she went through all of those different steps to scale her business. And it's so much harder than somebody who opens a laptop. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 60 of the Placemaking Podcast. I'm glad you're all here today. I have a fun episode to share with all of you. Now, today on the show, I have Alana Pruis, the founder and CEO of Recast City. She's the author of Recast Your City, co-author of Discovering Your Maker Economy and Made in Place, Small-Scale Manufacturing and Neighborhood Revitalization, and a chapter author for Creative Placemaking and Sustainable Nation. She is also a TEDx speaker on the economic power of great places and a featured keynote speaker as well. In this episode, we learn about the importance of small-scale manufacturing on the local economy, some examples of where this method and focus of stimulating economies has really worked, and the five-step method for recasting your own city with small-scale manufacturing. There's tons of great information in this episode, and I really appreciate Milana for taking the time out of her very busy schedule to discuss this topic of small-scale manufacturing by boosting local economies with me. Now, as always, if you have enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. There'll be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on. Uh, if you would, just give us a little bit more about yourself to begin with, and then uh, we'll kind of take that forward. And, and so kind of give us the genesis of your professional background, and then we'll, we'll trail that into the book. And your mission. Sure. My pleasure. Um, so my name is Ilana Pruce. I am a city planner by training. Uh, and I got into all of this work because I love places. I love downtowns. I love walking through places. And it breaks my heart when I'm in a place that is clearly um, not that it's unloved, but that people don't necessarily see the worth. And when I say people, it's not even necessarily people who live there, but it's the people who make the policy decisions or the investment decisions about that place. And for years, I worked in smart growth and community redevelopment, investing in downtowns and housing and transportation options. And over the years, I realized that we kept talking about jobs, housing balance or, you know, mixed use, but we never talked about what kind of businesses, what kind of jobs 
And about 10 years ago, I went down a rabbit hole to try to figure out what kind of small businesses really do make the biggest difference for our neighborhoods, really do make the biggest difference for our economic resilience, and really make the biggest difference for creating more equitable outcomes for more people, um, both in neighborhoods in bigger cities that have been historically excluded or neglected, as well as rural smaller cities and towns um, that have been neglected in different ways. And I came to product businesses. And these are, I call them small scale manufacturing. They're any business that creates a tangible product that you can replicate or package. My shorthand for it is hot sauce, handbags, or hardware. The other one that occurred to me more recently is artisans to advance manufacturing. So it's really anybody who makes a thing, it can be food, it can be wood, it can be high tech, but it's, it's the product side of it because they can sell in person, they can sell online. Um, and they're a very different kind of business for where we are right now with technology, um, but they're also accessible. People have a heritage of making things from every different part of our population. And so they're a really important part of our future economic development strategy. Yeah, yeah, and there's, there's so much in that that first first bit that we've just talked about, but to, to rewind a little bit, and you said you're a planner by trade? Yes. Okay. Did you have a background in planning? Like, were there family members in planning or, or what kind of resonated with you to, to go towards the planning career? Um, that's an interesting question. So I originally thought I wanted to be an architect okay. and I went and visited an architecture school at a college and realized that they don't sleep. <laughs> they didn't have and I said, well, uh, they still I really, don't. and they still don't. And <laughs> I, you know, I said, I really like design. I really like place. And then, and I'd never heard of planning, city planning as a field. Um, And coincidentally, at the same school, they had a a planning department, urban regional studies. And I learned that it was this place where it was a combination of this kind of design question, but also government and policy. Um, And I grew up, you know, my, my father worked in at the US Environmental Protection Agency. So government policy was sort of always at the dinner table. Um, and I fell in love with it. I really love this con- love this concept that you could really think about what you wanted to create and work with people in the community to create that. And I was always focused on how are we redeveloping our downtowns? How are we reinvesting in our older neighborhoods from the very beginning? Interesting. So do you have, it sounds like you kind of really have a, a deep connection with city centers and urban cores and, and that kind of dense population is is that kind of your background or have you just fallen in love with the uh this this type of place is it i grew up in suburbia where i could bike to my friend's house but there was nothing else i could get to as far as you got yeah yeah um and you know got my license as soon as i was allowed to so i would have that freedom um, but I grew up also visiting New York City, and when we had a chance to travel, it was either to national parks or to cities we could wander in. I mean, that was mm-hmm. really wandering places and appreciating places and, and the people who live there um, and the differences has always been a part of, of who I am and my family. And my mother, that was my father's influence. My mother's influence was that she made stuff. She sewed, she knit, she quilted. Um, she taught us all how to use drills. Um, so myself and my brothers, we all we are all tool people. So 
um, you know, that love of, of not only using tools, but being able to know that you can figure out how to make something if that's what you want to learn has also just been a, a part of my history. Awesome. Yeah, I, I always think it's kind of interesting to hear what people's backgrounds are, especially authors that have written, um, because obviously there's influence from backgrounds. And, uh, and it, Absolutely. it's funny how you, you know, we, we start unpacking it. it. It makes sense. But the mission behind Recast is that, you know, you, you want to promote these types of businesses to create a little more diversity in the community and, and provide uh, places for, for work and business, right? Um, can you give me in one to two sentences what the, what the mission of, of your book? It's, um, so Recast Your City, and I work at Recast City. So Recast Your City, the book, is focused on how do we help communities bring small-scale manufacturing back into their center as a place and economic development strategy to create a great place, mm-hmm. right? It's about building community, but it's also about building our, our local economy. Yeah, and so this, it kind of hits uh, home on, on some things because, you know, uh, these, these types of artisans, these, these craftsmen, it, it's, you know, I, I worked in, Fort Worth for a while, and, and we always had. Uh, there's a part of town called the Near South Side, and they really promoted these types of small scale manufacturing groups um, and, and kind of a mixed industrial, small scale industrial slash uh, uh, residential mix, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it, it really hits home. Because I've seen how those things have worked together symbiotically and how um, it really creates a unique place. Um, is there other uh, other areas that you've seen this done really well that you'd like to highlight that different cities or different parts of town that have really adopted this? Um, and we can take that and go from there. Sure. You know, there's a couple of different cities. There's, in fact, a lot of different cities that are taking it on now. There were a couple of early adopters. So San Francisco, with their organization called SF Made, was one of the first nonprofit organizations that was created by a group of small manufacturers to say, we need, we have a collective set of challenges and we want to create support for that. Um, and so that was everything from helping people find real estate that was affordable and a good state of repair to workforce development training to representing their voice to the city, um, but also marketing them and, and sort of making sure that people understood that this was an, a part of the local economy, doing um, tour days of their workspaces and everything like that. So they were really the first ones that got this figured out at scale not for a specific neighborhood, but really looking citywide. There are other cities that have followed suit, Baltimore with their Made in Baltimore brand and the open works maker space and the competitions that they've run. Um, Home Run Accelerator in Baltimore is really an amazing program where they identified that there are a lot of people who have home-based businesses but would like to be in a storefront and Baltimore wants more businesses in storefronts. And so this program 
competed assistance to folks who had strong home-based businesses to go through a training program and really make sure that they had all of their ducks in order and training in order to be prepared to be in a storefront in bricks and mortar and succeed at it. And then they also introduce those people to property owners who are interested in, in being their landlords and provided a small amount of grant funding to them to help make the transition. And so it's really thinking about this very purposeful engagement. Who do we want to benefit? What outcome are we trying to achieve? Um, and those buckets of training, real estate, and capital are sort of the three key pieces of it. So, um, you know, we're seeing it all over the country from, from those kinds of bigger cities to small town main streets. I did a project in Heflin, Alabama last year, two years ago, that, um, you know, was really all about how do they work on their four blocks of Main Street where they've done a lot of work with their Main Street program, but they still had a few vacancies. And the whole idea behind small scale manufacturing that you're not dependent on foot traffic today, you're not dependent on local incomes because that business is has a storefront, but is also selling online. And so they're bringing revenue into the community makes it a really really strong opportunity for smaller cities or neighborhood main streets that don't have strong foot traffic right now. Mm -hmm. And that, that seems like a pretty big advantage these days, right? So being able to not depend on foot traffic and be able to benefit from internet sales obviously is, is something that is easier to kind of market to these small businesses of, hey, we'd like you on our main street. Uh, we'd like your business there. We want to bring people to the area because they've got to have a reason to come, right? Right. So, you know, but we can't guarantee the foot track thing until you actually come. You know, it actually, multiple businesses come in and, and then they start generating that foot traffic. So um, that's got to be an interesting kind of new way to start those businesses that it, it wasn't necessarily the chicken or the egg of do we bring do we have to have residential nearby to make things viable or can we um, can we establish a business and then bring residential in right that, i mean they're going to need res you, you know downtown residential is always going to be part of the solution for me given what right. i've done but um I think the interesting part is that it makes people think about their space and their placemaking in a different way, because we always say with placemaking, right, we want foot traffic. Well, if you don't have any foot traffic and your retail is completely died, where do you start? Okay, you can start with programming, fine, but that's not long term. And so this is really thinking about all the steps in between um, that we need to be able to attract people back and do it in a way that is cognizant of what a small business actually needs, right? Mm -hmm. um, they need, you can't just ask a, a small store or a retailer to open up when there is no foot traffic if you can't promise foot traffic if they're completely dependent on the people who are walking into their store. And so we saw a lot of change in that during the pandemic. So people are looking at businesses in a different way. But most of, most of our cities and most of our towns, from an economic development standpoint, sort of are like, yeah, retail's nice and all, but that's not economic development, right? Economic development is us, you know, pursuing some 200 or 2000 person business that we want to bring to our area and we're going to throw mm -hmm. money or incentives at it. And I think one of the big challenges is from an economic development standpoint is getting local leaders to recognize that 
not only does the throwing the money at it not usually influence the decision making, most places aren't going to win that competition. And so what is everybody else going to do? What is that model for them? And so that's where where this really comes in is saying, you know, you can go after tech if you want, you can work on recruitment if you want, but really you have these businesses in your community today and you can help them grow and you can help them grow their revenue and you can help them be more resilient and you can help them scale if that's what they want to do. There, some of them are going to want to say, stay solo entrepreneurs. Some of them are going to want to scale to 5, 10, 20 employees. And these businesses pay 50 to 100% more per um, salary than retailer service jobs. So this is mm-hmm. one of the ways that we start bringing better, more wealth into the community. Oh, and you know, research shows that you know, we have this huge racial wealth gap where white households have 10 times the wealth of black households on average nationally. But black households that own businesses have 12 times the wealth of black households that do not own a business. And so when we're really starting to look at the, the big questions of our day, this is one of the ways out. Uh, so, so how do we get out? <laughs> so that's a big question, right? So you mentioned five steps, a five-step method. You, you kind of condensed it down into five uh, understandable, attainable steps in, in the book. Um, can we go into each in, in a little bit of detail just to give everyone kind of an idea of, of what? Sure. What those steps so are. the Recast Your City book is a first important to understand. It's it's a how-to book. It's a DIY, pick it up, get the worksheets, make it happen for your own community kind of book. Um, there are no secrets that I kept back. It's all in the book. <laughs> so that's, I think, an important first thing to understand. The five steps in the book that are this method are how we work with every community we work with. And so it it starts with, Um, What outcome are you trying to achieve and who should benefit from it? That's step one. Step two is um, finding the right people to talk to. So in this case, we give people a method to find small scale manufacturing businesses because they're not a standing database. Nobody knows who they are, but they're there. Mm -hmm. So find those people, find the property owners in the target area you're, you're looking at who we think are open to doing something different than maybe before or really believe into the, the community and its future. And then also finding connectors, people who can help you connect with these business owners from across the demographic diversity of your population. Um, this is really important. We know that, like I said, we're, we're facing racial wealth gaps. We have the greatest income inequity we've ever recorded in our country's history. That was before the pandemic. And we have a responsibility to make sure that we're reaching across our demographic diversity because the, the heritage of making things crosses every different part of our population sure. across income, across immigrant status, race, ethnicity. Um, sexual orientation, age, whatever it is, whatever divide you want to pick, there are people who make stuff. And so that's a part of it as well. And then step three is about talking to people. Um, It's really this method that's straight out of um, tech research, um, user research techniques, where it's about sitting down with one business owner at a time and and asking a consistent set of questions, not in a survey kind of way, but actually in an open-ended kind of way to really hear what 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 works for them about being in that community, what's hard for them, what's challenging for them about being in that place, and what's most important to them in the next year. And I'll come back to that question in a second. 
Um, the fourth step is analyzing it, understanding from across all of the different people you've spoken to, what works, what doesn't work, what's most important. Um, what are the kinds of assets that you can build on to address some of the challenges? Or what are some of the challenges that could, with a small step, you can solve really quickly? And then the fifth step is, is making it happen. It's an action step. It is all about, we really encourage people to find actions that they can take in the next three to nine months that are visible, that make a real difference, that are not just visible, but make a real difference for these business owners because people are really struggling right now and we can't wait. Um, and so find identifying those actions that you can take in the next three to nine months, what do people need in the next year, right? Feeds into that, that can make a big difference, build on your assets, address some of those gaps that are the most important and most glaring. And then also identify the big hard stuff that might take a few years to happen, um, but you're building up goodwill and you're building up partnerships and you're building relationships with these short-term successes to reach the bigger, harder things. Mm -hmm. Can you give me some examples of, of some of these hard, hard challenges that, that people are facing in promoting this type? Yeah, so when we worked in Columbia, Missouri, uh, we worked with a community improvement district, which is just like a business improvement district. It's just not in the downtown um, called The Loop. And they had a, you know, the the property owners across this corridor are part of the, the the board and got together and said, we know our area can be so much more. And they are sandwiched between a light industrial area tucked in next to the highway and an older residential area, historically um, black households south of this area. And the improvement district said, we want to be something to both of these and we want to make sure we're benefiting our property owners, but we want to make sure we're, we're answering a need in the community. And so we went out and interviewed a whole bunch of small scale manufacturing business owners from across the demographic diversity in the community. And we found that there were a bunch of food product businesses that people had at home. Mm -hmm. They were producing in their own kitchen because of what are called cottage food laws that allow you to produce a certain amount of, of food at home and to sell. And they were bumping up against the edge of how much they could produce at home. Mm -hmm. um, and they could only get into certain markets like a supermarket if they were producing it in a commercial shared kitchen. And we recognized this need. And the other thing that we recognized through the project was that there was a building on this corridor that was owned by the university, University of Missouri, Mizzou, that had an old kitchen in it. It was their <laughs> old cafeteria kitchen and it wasn't, it was there, it was a little old, but it was, you know, it had working parts and needed a little improvement. And through doing this project together, we also, they had also brought in the Economic Development Authority. And so all of a sudden we had a clear identified need and we had the right partners already at the table because of the way that we did the discussions and the outreach. And so for them to turn around and say, well, we immediately can put, within three months, we can put vendors at our pop-up park that we're building already on this corridor, and we're going to promote them on our social media, and we're going to actually, they changed their branding immediately to talk about making things on the loop. Those were all things that they could do in the first six months, mm -hmm. COVID hit, but then they opened that commercial kitchen in less than a year and a half when it was COVID delayed it by about six months, right? Mm. And so, but that was because of what we had understood. We understood the outcomes they were trying to achieve. They knew what, who they wanted to benefit. They wanted to make sure that the space was mission-driven and benefiting 
Black and Latina women in the community who were the majority of these businesses that they were finding. Um, and they had the partnerships and the space. So they still needed some investment. They needed to get buy-in. There was a whole thing that they had to negotiate, but they had a starter space for their commercial kitchen and could turn around and make it happen so quickly because of all of this other work that we had done at the beginning. Right, right. So identifying assets, like you were saying, Mizzou just happened to have a kitchen, <laughs> industrial kitchen nearby in a, in a vacant building. That was a great idea to utilize, you know, what what assets were available and meet that with the challenges of of kind of those citizens in the area and yeah. their additional investment in that area after it sounds like this was pretty recent, but um, the kitchen opened in January. Okay, okay. Um, so uh, have you noticed? More yeah, they, they've changed the. They just also changed the zoning on this corridor okay. to allow artisan industry, is what they're calling it. So now they're really sort of creating the space for new development to happen. The reality is, is that the area is zoned for mixed use, but the buildings that are there, which are set back with large parking lots, are completely full. They mm -hmm. don't have vacancies on this corridor, and so and mixed use doesn't actually pencil for the most part. And so part of what we also looked at for them was. What are the interim uses that we could help them figure out? Could you create a series of pop-up spaces? Could you create, um, you could use prefab buildings for like for small-scale manufacturing purposes, right? How do you how do you get over that hurdle? And and I think one of the things that's really different about it is we didn't say, let me say it in the positive. We said, what do we want here? And who should be able to be in that space, right? Because it has to be affordable to the small-scale manufacturers. Right. So instead of saying this, we want a 10 story building. And like, that's the only thing that we're saying about it. So the 10 story building or a five story building might be the right thing eventually, but none of it pencils right now. And if, if, even if you did new construction, the small scale manufacturers would not be able to afford it because the cost right. of construction is so high that none of them could afford the ground floor space without significant subsidy. So we're really taking that step back and saying, we're not looking at all of the assets in the community. We're looking at the assets through the lens of the needs of this very specific business type in a very specific place, because you have to think about it place-based and, and really thinking about who should benefit from the investment in that place. So it's not, we're not all over the place. All of the actions are coming back to that outcome that we established at the beginning. So it's, it's super focused in, in what you're trying to figure out so that the, actions you take make so much sense um, mm -hmm. while you're doing it. I'll give you another example. Euclid, Ohio, we're working with right now in our Recast Leaders Program, which is a 12-month cohort program we run for five cities at a time to teach them how to do this, coach them to do it themselves, um, and then support their implementation. And they are working with a property owner um, to renovate an older space and use it as an incubator for a number of small producers, three or four small producers to be able to go into that space. The producers have gone through a training program, right? They're, they're going to hopefully be able to move into the space next month. But it was all because the city said, we know we have these businesses somewhere, but we don't have them downtown. And we want to, whoever wants to work with us, we're going to work with them first to start making these spaces happen and do it in a way that is affordable to these businesses. And, and was that that most recent example, was that a public private partnership or how did that, how did that work financially? Just curious. Yes, that's a public private partnership, private okay. sector, public support, 
um, to make it happen. Okay. Um, and I would imagine for most places, that's really what it, what it kind of takes almost to. Depends on the people and depends on the place. I mean, there's a great example in Ithaca, New York. That's there's in fact a lot of examples across the country that are completely private sector at this point, because Mm -hmm. it, it really can pencil depending on the market Mm -hmm. um, and depending on, on the creativity of the property owner. So in Ithaca, New York, there's a space called press Bay alley and the old newspaper press building. And because it was already industrial, it was grandfathered in industrial they could keep it like that. So they put a, they put a maker space in the basement. They, on the alleyway, they created a whole series of micro retail spaces. They're actually getting above market rate on because at th- a 300 square foot micro retail space, the business coming into it isn't thinking about it on a per square foot basis. They're thinking about the flat fee of using right. the space, right? And they have office space in the building, right? There's a mix of different things going on there. But when we think about it as a part of this and really think about what the market wants, they've got a waiting list, I think, of 50 businesses wanting micro retail space. So they're doing it in the second building, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they've tapped into something that nobody else is answering. Similarly, in Dallas, Texas, there's Tyler Station. It's mm-hmm. a huge older industrial building. You're probably familiar with it, right? There's 70 different businesses in there. And the space is divided up in a very simple way with chain link. Like it's not investment of major walls. But it works. And so lots of these businesses now do do products together. And it's not just product businesses. It's all different kinds of things out there. Um, and, and then if you look at um, Macon Studios, which is in Philadelphia in the Kensington neighborhood, that's old uh, multi-floor industrial property. You know, this is a private sector developer who got uh, institutional investment backing uh, and is renovated this these 120,000 square foot buildings to be subdivided into a whole bunch of small scale manufacturing spaces. They're not micro, they're, I don't know, 2000 square feet or bigger, but there are people coming from up and down the East Coast to use these spaces because it's like moving into a co-work space. It's already, mm-hmm. you know, there is one entrance, people are taking care of the building. It's, and it's just, there's some amazing, serious and scaling businesses in these buildings. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I talked to Monty before, in, in Dallas and uh, Monty Anderson, he's got quite a bit of that. He 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 likes to use some of that right sizing, essentially of of, of office space or working space, and is able to create rents that are affordable. Um, and it's you know they're smaller areas, but they're right for the business. You know most most right. times you don't need that huge investment. Uh, for most of these businesses that you're referring to. So I'm just No, most of them are under a thousand square feet. Right. Right. Is that kind of what the criteria for micro would be? Is is that even less? No, it's not on a square foot basis. So I talk about, oh, for micro retail, maybe. That's a good question. Probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of our retail spaces are still being built at 5,000 square feet or bigger, right? Mm -hmm. So anybody who has retail that was built in the 80s or 90s, there, those are some of, I think, some of our significant vacancies because so many stores, even the national chains, have shrunk their footprint. And if you can't get the national chains, most local businesses don't want a footprint that big. So we have this big challenge of that: how do you, how do you reuse these spaces for retail in a way that's mm-hmm. cost-effective for them? But, um, you know, we see the same thing with small-scale manufacturing that we see with other businesses. There's a ton of them that are really small. 
Think about tech freelancers, right? There's a ton of them that are really small. There are a few that scale to 10 or 20 employees. And then there are a few unicorns under armor, right? Like they, they, they happen. Um, food and, and clothing are probably the ones that scale most, that are more, most likely to scale, but not only. Um, and small scale manufacturing um, for, to me is businesses between one and 50 employees. If you're in a smaller town, it might max out at one to 20 employees because it's really about fitting into the fabric of the downtown, the main street, or the neighborhood that we're talking about. And so that, that's really the criteria for it. Mm-hmm. Well, why do you think people are, are drawn to these type of businesses uh, for, for you know, retail, for, for purchasing? Why are, why are people drawn to local manufacturers and local artisans? Well, I think when we, when people can afford it, it's really something special, right? It's it's unique. You you can't see it anywhere else. Um, I think that people, and I actually think they, from what I've read, Gen Z is probably the best at this. Is it's not about consuming lots of different things. It's about consuming a few really special things. Mm-hmm. And so, I think this is a part of it. I also think that when you go to a festival or or a cultural fair in your community and you see vendors that are people from your community who make things, it really builds that sense of pride in your community and what you're about. Um, People really, it's really an amenity to be able to go to a window and see something being made. And so really thinking about how we create places that are unique, that that are really special, telling the story or the heritage of your community and the people who are there um, really makes a place stand out. It's the places we often go on vacation. We want to wander around the cute place that's unlike anywhere else. We want to stop in the store. And so when we think about creating those kinds of places for our own community, then we're going to have that potential of other people stopping in, but we're going to be creating a place that people within our community value. And I think it's important to think about the people from the neighborhood, from the community getting access to those storefronts the question of who gets the storefronts, I think is one we don't ask often enough when we're in placemaking and Main Street work. And I think it's a really important question for us to ask, but you know, we can really, we can really do a lot of exciting things in those spaces at this point. Yeah, and we touched on this previously too, but the, the digital revolution, you know, you've got Etsy has blown up, you know, and it, it draws from kind of the local artisans, the, the family businesses, the small scale manufacturing. Um, do you see the digital revolution as being a detriment to this to this type of manufacturing? Or no, it, not at all. It expanded yeah. their market, right? The mm-hmm. fact that these businesses can sell online across their region or across the country or internationally is why they can thrive the way they are. Historically, you know, a business was dependent on who they personally knew or the people who were walked by their storefront. And that's just not the case anymore. So I, I think that the, the digital revolution in particular, the, the move of these last two years to really buy so much online um, while still wanting the experience of going into storefronts, we know that part's not going away, um, that, that that's a really a competitive edge for this sector because of it and has made a really big difference. Mm-hmm. Well, we've thrown around the word placemaking a few times in this in this discussion and fittingly i'd like to ask you what what your your definition of placemaking would be and 
and maybe how this concept of small scale manufacturing can blend to um, your definition of placemaking. I feel like you must ask everybody this question. It's a good question for you to ask. Yeah. Um, so placemaking to me is, is creating a place that people feel like they are welcome, um, that they're proud to be a part of and that they want to be in. Um, and that they feel like they, that this is the place where the community can come together, however, whoever their community is. Um, and I think that it needs to be defined by the people who live in that place, not by uh, the, the distant planners or the distant designers. Sure. I think the reason small-scale manufacturing works so well is because it is, if you do it the way I'm describing it, it is of the neighborhood by the neighborhood. These are businesses that are coming from the community, um, but they they help create that unique identity that is that we know is so valuable for placemaking. It helps create that feeling of, well, this is a place I want to gather because there's cool things for me to look at or be a part of. Um, when we successfully uh, have a diversity of business owners in the storefronts that are from the community or represent the demographics of the wider community, um, people feel included. They feel like this is a place that can belong to them. Um, and it also creates that sense of beauty, right? You can see these beautiful things uh, even if even if it's a, a widget, right? The the machines that make these things are just so fascinating um, and so interesting that they become a draw um, of something beautiful and interesting to see um, in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they they really do, like you said, create kind of a gathering space. People see their neighbors when they walk into these. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it becomes kind of a social gathering and that lends to like you said the, the placemaking aspect and I want to touch back on what you were saying about for the people by the people how do you and you, you touch on it in the book and you go into detail in the book but how do you begin those discussions with people that uh, or how do you find these people I guess is more so that are making things and are are doing small, small uh, manufacturing and maybe in their own homes. Um, there, there, it is a hard part of the work. Um, mm -hmm. We we do have a whole method in the book that is very true, um, and it is really based on the way I find people when I work with communities. And uh, for anybody who's interested, you can get the first chapter of the book for free at recastyourcity.com. But you can also get the worksheets that go with the book there. They give you the how-to uh, in the worksheets on this. So um, it is about, it is partially about just word of mouth. Who do you know? Once you start thinking about this business sector, you realize you see them everywhere. That's the first thing I hear from everybody. Um, the second piece is that kind of asking the people you know, who do they know in that sector who make stuff? And then the other thing is connectors, people who are known and trusted in different populations within your community, who believe in the potential of that community and believe in the future of that community, inviting them in, having a cup of coffee with them, asking them, you know, telling them about what you're trying to do and asking for their help, asking them to work with you on it. Because we have so many divides in our communities, so many divides in our population that we need to take the responsibility to build new relationships with people to reach new parts of our population. There's no other way to find a whole crew of home-based businesses without going through somebody who just has personal relationships with those businesses and those business owners. 
Um, we also look at vendors for different markets, farmers markets, holiday markets, uh, festivals, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the first step, like you said, is, is awareness. Is, is being aware of this type of, of business. And just, you know, most people know somebody that's maybe doing like a side business here or there, but I don't think it really resonates with people that people are doing this, uh, you know, at a large scale and in their community. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a wonderful woman around here near um, um, has a cookie. It's actually not just cookies, but she started with cookies, <laughs> makes desserts. Um, she tells her story. I heard her tell her story at an event where she was, you know, she was working, she was producing at home and then she was using the kitchen of a restaurant when they closed at 11 o'clock at night. So she was Jeez. producing from like 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. or something. I have no idea how she did this. And then she moved to a shared commercial kitchen and then she scaled and was getting investors to build out her own 5,000 square foot production facility, right? Like, but she went through all of those different steps to scale her business. And it's so much harder than somebody who pick, opens a laptop, right? Right. And, and her, her cookies are unbelievable. And her <laughs> chocolate chest pie, her business's name is Whisked. Okay. Whisked. Um, I don't know Shout how far out she to Whisk. <laughs> Shout out to Whisked. Um, but, you know, this, this is what, I, I, the concern that I have, especially with the economic development field, is that people say, sort of like you just said, oh, there's, there's people who do this, like, in their spare time. The reality is, is there's a ton of people who do this full-time at home. Yeah. as their full income. And then there are people who are scaling beyond that um, and have employees um, and, and do these weird space combinations because there's nothing about our economic development strategy in our real estate market that accommodates this sector. And so I always talk about thinking about what do these businesses need in terms of support, space, and capital when they're starting up and scaling and really growing. And they're different answers at different stages. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that these stories are, um, and I'm sure you've got tons of stories of, of people that have, have uh, kind of transitioned their way from a home business to scaling and uh, every, every step along the way. What keeps you up at night at your current role? I think you kind of touched on this with your concern there, but I'm just curious, what, what keeps you up at night? Keeps me up at night. So many things keep me up at night right now. <laughs> but related to this, um, my biggest concern is that last year we had this true outpouring of support for small businesses, not mm -hmm. just small scale manufacturing, but but local small businesses. And I think that where we are with the pandemic, and this is true of how many people have died, this is true of businesses closed. People want to move on and they want to have amnesia. They want to forget how hard and how awful last year was. And the reality is, is that the small businesses are in fact struggling a lot more right now because last year there were all kinds of support that we were throwing away. Not that it was equitably accessed, but there was support out there. And so many businesses that survived last year, so many businesses closed last year and they closed at twice the rate for black owned businesses or Latino owned businesses than white businesses. But so many are more, that are still there are struggling this year for various reasons. And so my big fear is that last year, people really understood that 
if small businesses fail, the community fails. And that's really the soul of the place. And that this year, people sort of want to move on. And I'm worried about a neglect of this sector and a an ignoring of this sector that really needs attention, not just right now to get through where we are still economically, but that we have this opportunity to create this almost perpetual economic engine with the American Rescue Plan Act money that went out to all of these communities, tons and tons of money that's out there, that yes, we definitely need to use it to help the, the small businesses and a lot of communities are doing it for infrastructure and fixing their water system, very important. But part of it could also be used to really build up this sector of small businesses, small scale manufacturing. And I'm worried that we're missing that opportunity. Hmm. Uh, uh, those are, that's a great point. There is, there is a lot of help distributed recently and to make sure at least a portion of it goes to support something that is adds to the economic viability of, of your city centers, your downtowns um, is important. And, you know, in several areas, I've seen that the, you know, the downtown areas get neglected for new sparkly uh, infrastructure out the, you know, at the edge of the city. And hopefully uh, more of that attention gets, and, and you're, you're seeing it in some places, but, um, Hopefully, more of it gets distributed to those those city centers because that that's really the heart of the city. Well, or the what, neighborhoods that didn't get the investment in the past. Yeah, right. Looking forward, what is uh, what is the legacy of not only yourself but uh, recast? What do you hope that legacy looks like hundred years in the future? So, oh my goodness, I can barely get five years into the future. Um, <laughs> Recast City. So the legacy of Recast City to me is that um, communities recognize that small scale manufacturing businesses are a key part of their economic development strategy, that space for locally owned businesses, particularly product businesses, are seen as a public good and gets public support like affordable housing. We create affordable commercial space to retain good middle income jobs and locally owned businesses in the community alongside other investments. And that this really is, is a big part of the change of how we address the, the racial wealth gap, the ethnic wealth gap that we're seeing across the country and, and really changes who can build wealth um, and create a lot more opportunity for people who didn't have the chance or who were excluded in the past. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well. You are you're well on your way, but that is a big task. That you gave a, me a hundred years. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you got plenty of time. You no got problem. plenty of time. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate your time today. I, I did want to give you some time here just to just to give us a little bit more about where we can find more about not only recast, but your book, um, yourself and, and your mission. Sure. So you can find all the information about the book at recastyourcity.com. You can get the first chapter for free. Um, there's links to buy the book at bookshop.org. You can get the Kindle version at Amazon, or if you want to get the hard copy discounted, you can order it directly from the publisher, Island Press. You use promo code recast and you get 20% off the list price. 
Um, and if you're interested in information about the work that we do with communities, go to Recast City. And we right now have open applications for the Recast Leaders cohort for 2022, if this is something you want to work on with a crew of other cool cities. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, just on this, this cohort, um, can you give us a little bit more about what, what's involved? Sure. Uh, yeah. It's uh, the co Recast Leaders, we bring five communities together who want to bring small-scale manufacturing to some part of their city. And each community builds a team of three or four people. And we work with all five cities together to train them on this method, coach them to do the work themselves, do the, do, find the list, create the list, find the people, do the interviews, do the analysis. And then we help each community build their own action plan. And then the second half of the cohort time is supporting those communities to implement their short-term actions because we found that when we worked with communities and handed over an action plan and walked away, they really struggled with implementation if they didn't have any kind of support. And so this is really our answer to how do we help make sure people get through a big part of that first round of implementation. So um, it's a 12 month program. It's really exciting to see communities go from, from very first step of what outcome do we wanna achieve and, achieve and how do we find these people to Implementing the example I gave you from Euclid, Ohio, is is a group is the a group from in the cohort program right now um, that are really implementing things real time yeah. because they figured out what the community needs and they got the buy in and they're making things happen. So it's very exciting. The next cohort starts January 2022, and so if you look on our website about how we work with people, you'll see information about recast leaders there. Awesome. It sounds like a really cool program. Thank you for it's a lot of fun. Here. I yeah. have a lot of fun running it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again for all your time. And uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. Thank you so much for having me. 